Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Thank you, CJ, and good morning. Good to see you all. If you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, I just want to fill you in very quickly to let you know that this summer we have been looking together at but God moments in Scripture. We've been looking for that two-word phrase, but God. And every time we see it, we've seen it signaled a turning point. We see that things have been going in one direction, and then God acted. God intervened, and now suddenly things were going in a new direction. And this morning, we'll look at a couple more of these but God instances in Scripture. But let's begin in prayer. God, we thank you for the promises we've heard already from your word that we were lost, we were without hope, but you, God, saved us. You saved us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that that is the truth we celebrate today, the truth we are reminded of by your spirit and by your word, and the truth we remind each other of as we gather at the table. God, help us to focus our attention on your word to us and on your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm sure you're all familiar with the the terrible feeling that comes from, from being disqualified. Now, maybe you've experienced some sort of technical disqualification. You think of a, a track runner who at that second false start is, is sent packing. They can't compete in the race anymore. Or maybe you, you felt that feeling in your gut when, when you were searching for a new job online and you're looking at a position description, you're getting more and more excited about it and you read through the required qualifications and you realized your resume just wasn't gonna be a good match. And we think about those disqualifications we experience that are are kind of the least technical, but honestly the most painful when we realize that we have done something that has disqualified us from continuing in a relationship. There's something we've done, some mess up, some error, that means that there's, there's been a fracture in a relationship. We find ourselves on the outside looking in in terms of a relationship with someone that we cared about. And that's a painful, painful feeling. We see this very human tendency towards self-inflicted disqualification in the pages of Scripture as well. Beginning in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see people messing up and no longer being able to enjoy something that they had previously been qualified to receive, a benefit, a relationship. We see people in the Garden of Eden messing up and finding themselves now in a different situation. In fact, any honest summary of the patterns and themes of the whole Bible, I think, would have to include something along the lines of people do really dumb things, people do really bad things, and pay the consequences. But thanks be to God for those but God moments we also see all throughout Scripture. 
in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, in one chapter, chapter 9, we find a summary report that includes an astounding concentration of both human mess-ups, disqualifications resulting from sin, and but God turning points. Now, the book of Nehemiah is actually, you can think of it as a companion volume to the book of Ezra, because both these books in the Old Testament deal with the time surrounding the return of people, God's people, the Israelites, following captivity in Babylon for 70 years. The time of Nehemiah and Ezra, about 430 B.C., actually chronicles a second return, a second wave of returning exiles from Babylon. About 100 years earlier, the first wave to return from Babylon had done so with the permission of Cyrus, the Assyrian ruler who had overthrown the Babylonians. Members of that first wave had gone back and begun the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the project was undertaken to restore the walls surrounding the city as well. And after the walls were rebuilt, which is the saga that makes up the first half of this book of Nehemiah, the people gathered to hear the law of God read to them. We're told in Nehemiah chapter 8 that as the law was read, and as the priests explained to the people what the law meant, the people began to weep. I'm sure they were struck by this, this story and the law of God's holiness and his requirements for the people and their shortcomings, their disqualifications. But Nehemiah said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people gathered for worship as Ezra preached to them. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, we find a litany of confession that Ezra declared that day. We're told the people spent a quarter of the day hearing the word of the law of God and a quarter of the day in confession and worship. So I'm going to read some excerpts from their declaration, their repeating of the history of their own sinful waywardness and the faithfulness of God and his mercy. And as I read portions of chapter 9, listen, listen for how many turning points there are, how many twists as people turn toward God, turn away, and as God remains faithful through it all, as but God and yet God moments emerge one after the other. So from Nehemiah chapter 9, blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. 
but you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you had performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. (coughs) Excuse me. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, You heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. That's that's quite a litany, quite a rehearsal of the stiff-neckedness and unfaithfulness of the people and the faithfulness of God. And that's not even the whole chapter. 
In fact, that's just one passage in Scripture that, that does this, this act of rehearsal, this recreating of the story of people's fickleness, their stubbornness, and the mercy and grace of God. We might think of the whole Bible as one long story to that effect. And if we read passages like this, we might be tempted to wonder, well, how could people be so stupid? What were they thinking? You hear that they're rescued, and God's good to them, and God provides for them, and they turn their back on God. But then we're honest enough with ourselves, perhaps, to see ourselves in this story and say, well, that's me too. That's actually my story too, that God has been good and faithful and provided and I've gone my own way. There have been times I've turned to God out of obedience, out of a sense of worship, and then I veer the other way. And then I find myself turning to God to cry out for mercy again and restoration, and I find God to be faithful. And as we read stories like this, and as we see the zigzag course of our own lives, we hear of and read about the mercy and grace and faithfulness of God, and we might think, is that just too good to be true? I mean, is that really too much to, to hope for or to expect that God would actually be this gracious and merciful and good to us? Is it true that God will actually never put an end to us? He'll never abandon us once he's called us as our own. Isn't that too good to be true? And unfortunately, we might, on the very tail end of thinking things like that, end up finding ourselves, maybe even subconsciously also thinking, well, then isn't that something I can take for granted? Maybe I can take for granted the goodness and mercy of God if I can count on it always to be there, then, well, maybe my sin doesn't matter so much. Or maybe it's okay for me to do for a while those things I want to do. Just have my own way for a little while because God, God will always be there, right? And I think this is one reason we see these pendulum patterns in Scripture of God's people going their own way even though God has been so good and gracious and merciful to them. And if we ever find ourselves beginning to think this, to beginning to take for granted the goodness and mercy of God, I think it's a, a call for us, a, a cry for us to stop in our tracks and start repeating over and over, God is good and gracious and merciful God is good and gracious and merciful to repeat that until it becomes for us not an excuse to go our own way, but a reason we should fall on the ground in worship. That God is so good and gracious and merciful. That's what happened in Nehemiah's time. They came face to face with the goodness and mercy of God. And they spent half the day listening to God's laws, confessing how they'd fallen short, and worshiping God because he still loved them. 
because he was good and gracious and merciful. They got it. They didn't miss it. The Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that the Christian church in Rome didn't miss this. He wanted to make sure they understood it. And so we see in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians in chapter 6 that Paul writes, after explaining that God will always be good and faithful to forgive us, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The grace and the mercy of God, Paul writes, compel us to turn toward God, to turn away from sin and death and into forgiveness, into a whole new way of living through Jesus Christ. We're not meant to to hang back and think, well, that's just too much to hope for. My sin is too great. We're meant to dive into the pool of grace and begin living this new way of life. And to be reminded every time we experience the grace and mercy of God that it's a reason to worship all over again. This new life that God has called us to is meant to mirror the life of the resurrected Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This is what Paul writes about just a few paragraphs earlier in this letter to the Romans and the passage that CJ read for us earlier. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. This is the the good news. This is the but God moment in scripture that literally changes everything. As Pastor Chris told us last week, as we saw painfully played out in the story of Noah's time that separation from the creator has consequences. To turn away from the God of life is to turn toward death. But God, while we were dead, reached out and gave us life. This is the beautiful and astounding truth that we remember and celebrate and remind each other of as we gather at the table this morning and each time we gather here. We don't come to the table because it's a privilege we've earned, because we're good enough, because we've cleaned up our act, 
We come in a moment that is both solemn and celebratory because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'm sure that each of us could write our own version of Nehemiah 9 this morning. Each of us could write a a story, a history of our fickleness, our zigzagging course in life, and God's faithfulness. We could write how we seem to keep doing our own things and turning away from the very God who is literally the best thing that ever happened to us. And we could write our own stories of God's unimaginably constant goodness and faithfulness, grace and mercy. And just like the people did in Nehemiah's time, that's, that's not a record we play over and over just to make ourselves feel bad, but to remind us of God's goodness, to celebrate and worship him, and to serve as an inspiration to ourselves to renewed commitment to follow God faithfully. And that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah's time. The Israelites, we see, if you read the end of chapter 9, made a binding agreement between themselves and God. They put it into writing, and then they had their leaders and priests fix an official seal onto that document to say, this is for real. We're going to commit ourselves to following God. And as we come to the table, we ask our gracious God to affix once again his seal, to place the seal of the Holy Spirit on our hearts as we commit ourselves again to following him, as we find ourselves awash in the mercy of God to say, what else could we do but to seek to follow him faithfully? As we taste the bread and the juice that are physical reminders of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, as we take them in, as we are sustained by them, as we're convinced once again that it's not too much to hope for. We were lost in sin, but God has saved us through Christ. Thanks be to God for this incredible gift. Would you join me in prayer? Loving, gracious, merciful God, we thank you for rescuing us from death and leading us into eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, as we come to this table, to Christ's table, may we see him. May we see the body and blood of your Son. God, remind us again of the cost of our salvation and renew in us hearts that are committed to serve you as an act of living worship day by day. Father, we stand in awe of your love and goodness, and we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.